Good. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks very much for that. Folks, do have your Bibles open in front of you to Mark chapter 15, the passage that was just read for us. My name's Dwayne. I think I've met most of you. I just wanted to uh, give you three quick announcements. First of all, welcome. It's the first Sunday of the month, and that's why we have communion. And praise God, look at the passage we have to study before we come to communion. So how's that? Is it a coincidence? Hmm. But be that as it may, praise God for that. The second announcement, we've been on a short-term mission trip to South Africa, and you are been hanging on the edge of your seats. That's why you're coming Sunday by Sunday, because you want to know how did the trip go. Well, I'm happy to tell you that we had a meeting last night, and we're doing a feedback at North Coast Church at half past ten. Then we're doing a feedback at Downstairs Church, but because we're having communion, uh, we thought it would be a bit crowded. So the feedback from that trip will be next Sunday morning, where we'll have everyone up. We've got a few interviews and some pickies for you. Second announcement, we've got a celebrity. Where is Ruth? There she is. Look at the back there. That lady is a missionary. I know nothing about what she does, but I know her family and Naomi said she's nice because Naomi chatted to her at the ladies thing. Now, the reason I'm flagging her is because we're going to have Ruth up in three weeks' time to tell us about her work in the Philippines. That's right. eh? But I'm pointing out to you, so if you're bored over tea and coffee, wander over and ask her some exciting things, and she'll tell you lots of good things. So welcome, Ruth. Great to have you. And third announcement. uh, Was there three? Yes. Uh, At a meeting on Monday night, we had all our elders from the different congregations there. There's 14 of us, and we prayed. We want to give our intention to leave our denomination the Westminster Presbyterian Church. It's our intention to leave the denomination and we want you to know that and we want you to know that we're praying and talking about it. Actually, we've been praying and talking about it for a couple of years now. And uh, there is a stated meeting coming up on the West Tonyville. When is that? Fifth, oh, I thought you were waving. 5th of December is a stated meeting. That's a meeting of members and that. And we'll be discussing that more. But some of you might be a little bit troubled by that. I can spend a half an hour telling you why you needn't be. Um, it's not about doctrine. It's not about fellowship. We're very good friends with these people. It's, we think this is the best way to pursue gospel ministry in the northern suburbs. And there are one or two things we want to do that perhaps don't abide by the rules of our denomination. And so we want to be free of that. But if you have any qualms and if you have any questions, the thing to do is not panic. Just come and talk to us. This is the unanimous decision of 14 of the elders and we would love to share with you and talk with you about it. One last thing, that does not mean we want to be independent. We don't think the church can be independent because we're one body in Christ. And so we're seeking to fellowship with the fellowship of independent evangelical churches which is an Australia-wide association. It's not a denomination, it's an association which is what we want. So, if you want to talk to me or anyone about that, please, please do. If you're a visitor, sorry, you're thinking, huh? Well, don't worry. All right, well, here comes the juicy part. Mark, chapter 15. We've been working through the Gospel of Mark for quite a while now, haven't we? And we've come to Mark, chapter 15. And how important is this passage? Because today, we're going to get our get to grips. We're going to get our heads around the death of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. 
and I've told you before, we've said this before in our series, no religion makes such a fuss of the death of its founder like Christianity. Here we are again. Would you believe it again? I think I find myself, this is deja vu. I was saying this a few weeks ago. Here we are again, looking at the death of Jesus. Can't us Christians just get over it? And the answer is no, we can't. Uh, The death of Jesus Christ is absolutely central to Christianity. Most religions tend to downplay the death of their founder. Not Christianity. We study the death of our founder. Hear me out, but in a kind of like relative way, we think the death of our founder is even more important than his life. Now, that's a relative statement. He couldn't have died if he hadn't lived. So, get what I'm saying. But the death of our founder is of utmost importance. In fact, the word comes to mind, it's crucial. Who knows where the word crucial comes from? The cross. It's absolutely central. So, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to consider the death of Jesus together. Let me pray. We're about to study a piece of history the death of a carpenter from Nazareth. But we're persuaded that this is the centre of the universe. We're persuaded that this and nothing else compared to this, this fully reveals God. So, Father, won't you come and preach to us? Come and proclaim to us. Come and persuade us. Come and show us the importance of the death of Jesus Christ. Help us to get our heads around it, we pray. Amen. Well, sometimes the death of a person can uh, reveal a lot about that person. And I thought as I was preparing this, it suddenly struck me to consider the death of other people. And we have a number of examples. I, I read about the death of Julius Caesar, which is very interesting, really. Uh, have you, do you know how Lenin died? The founder of communism, well, communist Russia, really, the, the Bolshevik Revolution, Lenin died by running around and begging tables and chairs to forgive him. He ran around saying he's such a bad sinner, he went mad and literally was begging tables and chairs to forgive him his sins. The Buddha died, the founder of uh, Buddhism, He died saying, I have not yet reached my goal. I have not yet reached my goal. But one of the most helpful comparisons in the death of some founder of some great movement is the death of Muhammad. So what I did was I looked up the Quran and I read some of the Hadith, which is an authoritative uh, document in Islam along with the Quran. And here's what I discovered. The bottom line I don't know if you know how Muhammad died. Do you know how Muhammad died? Well, I'm about to tell you. According to Islam, Muhammad attacked a Jewish settlement of Kaibar. He destroyed, he tortured, he murdered, he plundered, and he enslaved many people. And a Jewish woman, whose family had been wiped out by Muhammad and his, and his hordes and his armies, cooked him a roast lamb and she put poison in it. And she fed it to Muhammad. He ate it and he began to feel its effects. And he died three days later. A couple of things to notice about his death. First of all, Muhammad was caught by surprise. 
He didn't know he was being poisoned. He didn't know he was going to be poisoned until he felt the effects of the poison on his body. Which of course is, as you will see, utterly different to Jesus Christ. In fact, the Jewish woman, when asked, he asked her, they captured her and brought her to him. And and he asked her, why did you do this? And she said, we wanted to test you. A true prophet would know what's going on. Second thing to notice is that he tried at all costs to avoid death. He prayed. He pleaded with Allah. Muhammad was said to have healing hands. He rubbed his whole body with his hands so that he could be healed. Gabriel the archangel pleaded with Allah for Muhammad to be healed. And finally Muhammad turned to what he believed was the best of all cures. He was cupped. That is, they cut him and bled a cup full of his blood out because he believed that to be the best cure. Thirdly, as he lay dying, he prayed for curses upon Christians and upon Jews for what had happened to him. But the most important thing, the fourth thing I wanted to notice is that his death accomplished nothing. Not even Islam teaches that his death achieved anything. It achieved nothing for his followers. In fact, the Quran teaches that Allah offered Muhammad a choice. Do you want to stay on earth or would you like to go to paradise? And Muhammad rather selflessly chose paradise. Now have that in your minds as we compare that to the death of Jesus Christ. The historical account of his death. And this is how we're going to do it. We're going to ask two questions. What does Jesus' death teach us about Jesus? Who is he? What does his death tell us about who he is? And secondly, and probably the most important, what did it achieve? How am I better off this morning by the fact that Jesus met an untimely death? How am I better off because of that fact? Let me show you. I've got three things. Number one, Jesus' death shows that he is God's prophet. Jesus' death shows that he is God's prophet. What do I mean by this? I simply mean this, that Jesus' death happened exactly in accordance with his words. See, what's a prophet? Well, a prophet is a mouthpiece for God. Someone who speaks God's words, someone who hears what God says and brings them to the rest of us. They speak God's words to us. And it's a very, very serious occupation because the words you speak as a prophet reveal God, obviously. And that's why the penalty throughout the Bible for a false prophet is death. Because to speak words on God's behalf that are not God's words is to misrepresent God. But it's not just about misrepresenting God. The seriousness of being a prophet is that you speak God's words and what do God's words do? God's words prescribe reality. We've said this many times. God's words don't describe reality. God's words prescribe reality. God's words will always come true because reality lines up with what God says. God's words don't line up with reality. Reality lines up with God's words. We know this because God made the universe by speaking. Let there be light. God didn't say, oh look, there's light. God said, let there be light. 
and light followed his words and the whole universe. Not only did God create the universe by speaking, God sustains the universe by speaking. We read in Colossians that the word of God upholds the universe. It keeps going because of his will and his word. God's word governs everything, even his enemies. And that's what we see in the death of Jesus. Have a look at verse 16 to verse 20. Look at what happens. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe, put on his own clothes, and they led him out to crucify him. Isn't that awful? What's going on? And the answer is, this is happening exactly in accordance with the words of Jesus Christ. This is his plan. This is going according to plan. Nothing's out of control here. His words are directing the show. Jesus' words are, are well, I'm trying to think of a movie type thing. What do you call it? When you, his words are writing the script. They're directing the show. Come back with me to Mark chapter 10. Look at Mark 10 verse 32. Mark 10 verse 32. We looked at this about uh, a couple of weeks ago. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. This is what is going to happen. Not, oh look, oh I can see what's going to happen. This is what is going to happen. Saying, see we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. Here comes the part. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they, i.e. the Gentiles, which must mean the Romans, will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Can you see that it's all going according to the word of the prophet of God? Jesus' words are driving the bus. It's not a case of prediction. It's a case of prescription. Come to Mark 14. Look when they come to arrest Jesus. We saw this last week. Mark 14, 49. Mark 14, 49. Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. Why? I'm a soft target. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. Who's driving the bus? Who's in control? It is the word of the prophet of God. The scriptures being the written word of God's prophets and Jesus sitting there teaching in the temple and yet they can't arrest him until he decides. And of course Jesus 
being the final prophet, speaks in accordance with all God's words. So come with me to the crucifixion. Have a look at chapter 15, verse 21. Let's go through this together. I want to show you some amazing things. Mark 15, 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Why does Mark say the father, father of Alexander and Rufus? Because if you read Romans 16, Rufus becomes a Christian. And he's part of this group. It, what you're listening to is, I keep saying this, it's history, it's not myth. You know Rufus, that guy who works uh, at IGA on the corner? Um, it was his dad that had to, see, does that sound like a myth? I'm telling you about someone you know, Rufus. Well, we don't. I mean, who would call their son Rufus? Actually, a very good friend of mine. But that's another subject. Um, hopefully he's not listening to this. So, history. Verse 22, And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. I'd love to pause there. We don't have time. Do you know where Golgotha is? It's a little outside of Jerusalem. And it, it, it's this, I've seen pictures of it about 100 years ago. It's this little cliff-top face with a cave in it and these two eyes. It looks like a skull. That's why it's called the face of a skull. And just below it, I've been there lately, like, well, lately, that sounds awful, about 10 years ago. Now it's an Arab bus rank. It's a very busy bus rank. But it was always in, at an intersection of major highways. And that's where the Romans always crucified people, so that as many people as possible could be passing by. But here's an astonishing thing. Did you know that Jeremiah, tradition has always held that when Jeremiah wrote the book of Lamentations, he sat in that cave, because it was a well-known landmark in Jerusalem times. And in Lamentations, actually I think I'll put it down for you. Listen to what Jeremiah writes as he sits in that very same cave. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by, Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. Isn't that incredible? He's sitting in the same place, Golgotha, and writing those things. But never mind that. Have a look at what happens. Verse 23. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Why, Jesus? Why wouldn't Jesus drink wine mixed with myrrh? It's too bitter. He had a sweet tooth. No, a wine mixed with myrrh is a mild, where are my pharmacist friends? There sits Matt. Do you say analgesic? Yeah, sure, he says that's okay. He's my favorite drug dealer. Um, what, what, what it is, is it's a mild pain reliever. Because when they stretch the victim out, they're about to put nails through his wrists and through his heels. Actually, I also read sometimes they put it through your genitals just for fun. But anyway, they put it through his wrists and through his heels, his ankles. And they don't want people to pass out because of the pain. Where's the fun in that? So you give them this drink to ease the pain. And Jesus won't drink it. Why won't he drink it? Well, we already know. Because he said earlier on, look in chapter 14, verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
Here's what Jesus is doing. He is going to drink the wrath of God, the judgment of God, to its absolute minimal. Therefore, he won't drink a cup of wine mixed with myrrh. He's not going to drink anything else that will diminish from the cup of God's wrath. He's in control. The prophet of God is driving the show. But of course it carries on. And let me read it a little bit quicker for you. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. So obviously Jesus was crucified naked. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Uh, That's about nine o'clock in the morning. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So anyone who says, if Jesus would just appear, I'd believe, is a mocker. To want to see and believe is to mock the cross of Jesus Christ. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. Someone, when I was sitting out chairs this morning, asked me why. And that's just because in Aramaic, Jesus cried out, Elihu, Elihu, my God, my God. And in Aramaic, Elijah sounds like that, Elihia, Elihia, which means uh, the Lord is my God. So it sounds the same. That's why they think he's calling Elijah. But as I read that to you, let me read you another passage in the Bible. Listen to Psalm 22. You may want to turn there or you may just want to listen. Perhaps it's a good idea sometimes just to listen, but it's up to you. Psalm 22. This was written a hundred years, hundreds of years before Jesus. It was written by Jesus' great, 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 great grandfather, David, the king, who, like Jesus, was a Messiah, who, like Jesus, was from Judah, who, like Jesus, was born in Bethlehem, and who writes these words. Just listen to them. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. See, what you've got here in Psalm 22 is a window into what's going on in the mind of Jesus as he hangs on the cross. Because this is the psalm that he's quoting. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him if he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. 
Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a raving and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare at me and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I mean, who can explain this? If this is not God, then I don't know what is. Here is the prophet speaking and here is the great prophet of God acting exactly in accordance with the words of God. I love the way we don't have time to go through it all. Have you ever noticed how Psalm 22 ends? They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, even people in Perth, that he has done it. You see how Psalm 22 ends? He has done it. Come back with me to Mark 15. Have you ever noticed how Jesus ended his life? So much are Jesus' words driving the spectacle. Look at Mark chapter 15 verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry. Do you know what he said? It is finished. He has done it. It's finished. He's in control. Here is the prophet of God whose words are... In fact, his words are so driving the agenda. Look at verse 37 again. Think about this. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. His word determines when he dies. When he's finished speaking, he dies. That's the prophet of God. That's what Jesus always said. No one takes my life from me. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. No wonder when the prophet speaks his final word, he dies. His own death is in accordance with his own word. So what I'm suggesting to you, first of all this morning, and this is the longest point, is that Jesus' death shows that he is God's prophet. So what does that mean for you and me? The answer is, we can really know God. We can really know God. Really. Because Jesus is the prophet of God. He speaks the truth. Jesus reveals a true picture of God. Jesus is a true reflection of what God is like. We can trust what he says. How do I know there's a God? Do you know that I have these moments, especially when I'm kite surfing and I take the wipeout very far out to sea. But how do I know there really is a God? Prove it to me. Answer? Jesus. Jesus is God speaking. Jesus is how God reveals himself and I can trust what Jesus says. 
How do we know what God's really like? Okay, so there is a God. But how do I know I even like him? Answer, Jesus. When you look at Jesus, you see what God is like. Not only that he's there, but what he's like. It's true, folks. Stop doubting. When you doubt Jesus, it's because you're trusting somebody else. You're listening to another voice. Your mate at the pub with his speckled hen ale. And he says, oh, the Bible's got contradictions. And you doubt. You listen to the word of a guy's on three beers. But here is the prophet of God. We can really, really know God. But that's not all. It's not just true. Christianity is not just true. Christianity works. It works. And that's the next point. Jesus' death shows us that he is God's priest. He's not just a prophet of God. He's the priest of God. What do I mean here? What I mean here is that Jesus' death achieves something. It works. Jesus' death brings us to God and God to us. That's what a priest does. Okay, can I, can I demonstrate what a priest does? They're all you filthy, horrible sinners. And I am the priest. And my job is to represent you to God, just God, up here somewhere. Obviously, don't think he looks like that, but you know what I mean. There's God. My job is to represent you to God. Oh God, these guys are awful. Please, have mercy. I know they've... Me- That's what I'm doing. I'm praying for you. I'm representing you. Then God talks to me and I come back to you and I tell you, God says it's okay. Listen, I'll put in a word for you. It'll be all. That's what a priest does. He's a go-between between you and God. But how does he do it? Well, what he does is he takes a sacrifice. He takes a perfect sacrifice and he kills it and offers it up to God and says, please don't punish them. Look, I've killed an animal for you. Let your anger, your judgment fall on the animal, not on them. That's the job of a priest. What I'm busy telling you, by the way, is universal. Every religion on earth has this kind of system to some extent. Because in our heart of hearts, we all know we can't just approach God. We know that. We can't even approach Julia Gillard. How much more the God of the... Anyway. But there's a couple of problems with my little system. First of all, Can an animal really pay for you? Don't you find that a bit insulting? Can an animal take your sins away? Is a sacrifice really enough? I've got another problem. What about corrupt priests? What about the fact that this fellow who stands between you and God isn't that nice either? Like he's got a whole lot of things he shouldn't be doing either. In other words, does this whole system work? The answer is no. It doesn't work. And so you'll have to come back next year. And the year after that. And the year, and that's what the Jewish system was. You have to keep doing this because it doesn't work. But in steps Jesus. And all through this death of Jesus, we're being shown that Jesus is God's priest. The one he's appointed. And not just God's priest. He offers himself as the perfect sacrifice. So look at it with me. Look at verse 27. And with Jesus, verse 27, 
they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Who cares? The answer is that's what the Bible said. In Isaiah 53, we're told that Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. He's acting like a priest. He's with the people. He's hanging with his homies. He wants to be with them because he's going to represent them. He can't stand above them. What kind of priest would that be? Look at verse 28. You can't find it, can you? Because that was a joke. It's in some manuscripts. There is a verse. Does your Bible have a verse 28? No, that's right. Because in some manuscripts there is a verse 28. And I'm not going to go into that. But uh, basically verse 28 is a quote that I just quoted you from Isaiah 53. But have a look at verse 29. Just checking who's awake. Verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. What's this? Folks, this is a clear indication that Jesus is God's priest. Because the whole system that I just acted out to you, he's going to destroy. And raise another one in three days. They don't even understand that they're spot on. That's precisely what Jesus is going to do. He's going to do away with the old system. Basically, what we've been showing here is that Jesus is going to be the new temple. The new arrangement by which we come to God. But of course, ultimately, the priesthood of Jesus at his death is established in verse 38. Look at verse 38. Jesus breathes his last. In verse 38, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The system is blown apart. Jesus rips the curtain temple up. It's done away with as he dies. What is he showing other than that he is God's new priest? The perfect priest who lives forever. We know that he's spotless like a lamb because Pilate tried him and they couldn't find any sin. Pilate said he's innocent. So what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that Jesus' death shows that he is God's priest and therefore, why is that going the wrong way? We can really get to God. We can really get to God. Really. Because of our priest. He doesn't just tell us the truth about God. He doesn't just bring God's word to us. He takes us to God and represents God to us. If we had more time, I'd love to go to Hebrews 10, which explains this. But let me rather just drive home this point. How do we get to God? Does Christianity work? And the answer is, there is a thoroughfare, a highway between God and us. And it is our priest, Jesus Christ. Every time you come to church, and you hear about Jesus Christ and Him crucified, you are being brought near to God. Don't let the carpets with the little black spots put you off. Don't let the ordinariness of this event put you off. It's the preaching of the gospel of Christ and Him crucified that brings you to God. It works. Some people think 
you connect with God when the guitar takes centre stage. When it's so emotional, you are connecting with God. Now, I'm glad you get emotional and if you ever came to my house while I'm having a shower, you would hear the same thing. But it's not true. I know you feel that way. But you're not connecting to God by singing. Some people think you connect to God by ritual. Stained glass windows, elaborate uniforms, smells, bells, and then a man sacrifices bread and, the, and it's all... That's not connecting you to God either. Here's how you get connected to God. When you turn to Jesus Christ. When you turn to Him, fasten on Him, fix on Him. When you hear the gospel again of Christ and Him crucified, you are brought near to God insofar as you believe it. Is Christianity true? Yeah. Jesus is God's prophet. Does Christianity work? Yeah. Jesus is God's priest. Lastly, what about my emotions? What about, how will this draw me today? Tomorrow I've got work, Dwayne. Jesus' death shows that he is God's king. And this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the way, the fact that his death shows he's king is highlighted all the way through. So look at verse 16 to 20 again. Have you ever wondered about this? And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, twisted together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, so the soldiers crown him, and they begin to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And kneeling down, they paid homage to him. Why is this going on? Because this is called the vehicle of irony. It's powerful. The irony, why don't they beat Jesus up and say, liar, 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 blasphemer, fraud, failure, fail, you fail. Why don't they tease him like that? Why are they going, hail, king of the Jews? They mock him, for sure. They don't think he is. But it's the vehicle of irony. It's that even in the mouth of God's enemies, testimony is being paid to the fact that Jesus is God's king. Have a look at verse 26. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Why that inscription? Why not, this man is a fraud? Why the king of the Jews? It's delicious irony, because it's true. In fact, the religious leaders know, I mean, they read the Bible better than we do. That's why they didn't like it. So the chief priest, this is in John, of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather the man said I'm the king of the Jews. And Pilate, the power in Palestine, answers what I've written, I've written. Now, he didn't know this, but how I'd love to add to the Bible. Is that wrong, to add to the Bible? <laughs> of course it is. But how Pilate should have said, I'm not in charge of this whole show. Some greater power is driving me. And then, of course, the ultimate sign that Jesus is God's chosen king is verse 31 to verse 32. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, 
Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. That is one of the purest statements of the kingship of Jesus Christ. Because what's the job of a king? What's the role of a king? To save his people. When Israel went to God and said, look, we love Samuel, he's okay, hasn't stolen a donkey. But we want a king. Why did they want a king? We want a king to fight our battles for us. We want a king to save us. That's what a king does. A king is for his people. A king saves his people. He fights for them. And so, of course, he can't save himself because he's busy saving others. That's what a king does. Look, he saved others. He can't save himself. Spot on. Because he's the king. His job is to save others, not himself. They just didn't understand that he is the ultimate and perfect king who rules over his people for their good, not for his good, to his own cost. He will govern his people and save them to his own cost. What a great king. Wouldn't you vote for him? I'd vote for him. This is the servant king that Jesus spoke about. If you go back to Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man, when he's teaching his disciples, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so this leads to the highest profession of faith in the whole of Mark's Gospel. Look at verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. That is the highest point in Mark's Gospel. Because what you've got here is a pagan, Gentile, Roman ruler who acknowledges that this naked Jew, crucified and tortured and now dead, I mean, get your head around this, is God's chosen king. That's what son of God means, eh? means king. God's chosen king. Isn't it great? The king is dead. <laughs> Long live the king. Huh? Look, a corpse is king. See, what makes this profession so special Here's what makes it so special, is that the centurion sees that Jesus the King rules from the cross. He is King upon the cross. Not on a little ivory chair. Not in a hotel, but on the cross. Peter couldn't even get this. Do you remember Peter? Remember when Jesus said, who do people say I am? Peter said, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist. Jesus said, yeah, yeah. Who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, God's King. Then Jesus said, yeah, well done. I'm going to suffer and die. And Peter goes, oh, no, no. Oh, no, 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 no. No, you can't do that. Peter won't have a king who rules from a cross. He wants a king like, like Muhammad, who beats his enemies up. Folks, here is the heart. Here is the heart of Christianity that Jesus rules us for our good. 
even to His own cost. We can really be blessed. Christianity is not just true because Jesus is God's prophet. Christianity doesn't just work because Jesus is God's priest. But Christianity is the best thing because Jesus' death shows that He's God's King. We can be really, really blessed. He is a King who will rule us to His own detriment for our good. Let me show you where we see this. Look at verse 33 and we'll close with this. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Can you see what's going on? Jesus, our King, fights in the darkness for us. He, in the darkness, is representative of God's anger, God's wrath. The darkness represents chaos. It represents brokenness. It represents pain. And who's in the middle of the darkness? Not you and me. Our King. Our King is fighting for us. He's gone into the cave for us. It's like your little children. And you go down the passage and they will not go to bed because it's dark and they saw a monster under the bed. And so what do you do as a parent? You go in ahead of them. Look, look, there's no monsters here. You can, and then they follow you in. Here is our captain fighting in the dark for us, gone on ahead of us. The blessed life is to follow him. You don't want to go into the dark by yourself. See, I don't know what darkness you're going through. Depression? Do you hate your work? You've got the sin that just won't leave you alone? It doesn't matter what the darkness is. And ultimately the wrath of God. Here is the king who will go into the dark and fight for you to his own cost. The blessed life is to submit to that king. To walk the road with that king because he rules us for our end. And if he's any kind of king, he'll bring all suffering to an end one day. So Jesus' death shows that he's God's prophet. And therefore Christianity is true. Jesus' death shows that he is God's priest and therefore Christianity works. And Jesus' death shows that he's God's king. Therefore Christianity is real. It's a blessing. It's a joy. And that, my friends, is the gospel, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Why don't we pray and let that message of Christianity sink in. I'm going to give you a few moments just to quietly think about these things. I'm going to ask the elders to come up because we're going to go straight into communion. But while we're doing that, why don't you spend a few minutes just letting these words and these thoughts go inside your head. Where are the elders? Gillies, John, 